Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindala. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. So, Dr. Lasby, for our listeners who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a introduction? I'm Andrea, and I practice in Calgary, Alberta. I'm a partner at Mission Eye Care, where I've worked for the last six years, since 2014. I originally went to the University of Waterloo uh, and did my optometry degree there, and then decided that I wanted a completely different experience from that kind of Canadian perspective, and so I planted myself in Oklahoma at Northeastern State, and that's where I did my cornea and contact lens residency. And part of the reasons why that appeals to me so much is because of their advanced scope in Oklahoma, because we can do lasers, we can do minor surgical procedures. And so the ability to, to see all of these in disease patients, I knew I wanted to go back to do private practice after. So I take that residency because a lot of contact lens residencies are just very research-based and you only do contact lenses for the whole 12 months. And so you kind of lose touch with those other parts of optometry. But it was nice because I was able to spend some time in the pediatric clinic. I was able to spend time in low vision and lots of time in disease. And so that really kind of honed all of my skills, but still gave me that focus on anterior segment and, and contact lenses that I was striving for. Um, and a big reason of why I wanted that, uh, because when I looked at where I wanted to go back to, which was Calgary, a city of over a million people, there were really no optometrists that really, I would say, specialized in that area. And so, you know, of a city of over a million people, there are people that need it. So what are they, what are they doing? They just don't have access to it. And that was kind of the story. So I decided instead of just going back to a flooded, saturated market with my classmates, I would go and get some extra education and then come back after. Uh, and then I joined my practice in uh, 2014, right after graduation. And I've been there ever since. Um, I just took uh, three months off because I just had a baby boy in April. Yeah, so congratulations. <laughs> having a baby while being a practice owner, we can talk about that <laughs> later. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm back at practice now. So I'm, I'm seeing patients again. So things are picking up again now post COVID, but it's been a very interesting journey. I would say in the last 12 months for sure. Yeah. I didn't expect to have a baby during a pandemic. That wasn't yeah. planned, but here we are. <laughs> that baby will never hear the end of it. They will <laughs> never hear the end of it. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, so you just mentioned that, you know, you pursued a residency, um, in specialty contact lenses in Oklahoma. So, you know, for someone who wants to pursue specialty contact lenses, do you personally feel that a residency training is necessary if they want to, you know, open up their own practice and add that into a practice? I love teaching fourth year interns. And I tell all of them, if you can do a residency, take that opportunity to do it. For a lot of Canadians, it's not a possibility. Um, but if they get the opportunity, I really push them to do it because I, it was a game changer for my career. I know that when I came back to Calgary and uh, found my now business partner, he wasn't hiring at the time. Uh, I just found him because he was the only person, when I Googled keratoconus in Calgary, he was the only guy, the only optometrist that came up on Google. So I was like, okay, it's either this guy or I'm probably not going to go back. 
And I talked to him and he sat down with me. He's like, well, I don't have an opening right now. It's like, I know. He's like, and I don't hire anyone without at least five years of experience. And I was like, well, in my opinion, a residency is equivalent. <laughs> and he was like, after talking to me, he said, you know what? I would agree. It sounds like you are already a seasoned optometrist and you've only been in your residency eight months. And so then he was like, you know what? I've got this hearing aid guy next door. I'm just going to kick him out. <laughs> and you can take over and we'll just renovate it and make it another eye, eye lane. And so we did that and, and uh, it worked out for the best, but I wouldn't have had that opportunity, nor would I have had the opportunity to work full time, likely in a private practice, if I came directly out of school. And so whether it's a contact lens residency or whether it's any type of residency, I really tell my interns, you know what, if you can do it, try to do it because it will really get you ahead in, in the game and potentially get you kind of that job that you hope for and you think of when you're in optometry school, rather than getting out and being like, oh my gosh, I have to string together. I'm at this clinic one day a week, this one one day a week, over there one day a week, and you're not at the same clinic at all, or you're not doing what you want to do. So you're not in maybe the, pra the practice setting that you were hoping for. Now, I do tell my, my uh, students that are interested in contact lenses but can't do residency that you can do it. It's just going to be harder for you. So that includes, you just have to be really proactive with your education. You know, go to contact lens conferences like the Global Specialty Lens Symposium, like the uh, Vision by Design, which of course we can't go now, but there's still really good education online. Yep. The Gas Permeable Lens Institute does monthly webinars. Uh, the uh, Specialty Lens uh, Society puts on webinars mm -hmm. as well. So there's so much that you can do to kind of get your hands wet a little bit. And I know, Deepan, where we met each other at the Spring Symposium, the best way to get your hands wet and kind of get things going is actually to try them on actual patients. So if you have the opportunity to go to a local workshop, that's the best way because they're going to grab a whole bunch of different lenses ideally and have some patients with interesting conditions that they're going to allow you to kind of play with and kind of see, okay, these are the techniques that I can do. And as soon as you start actually using the lenses and touching them and putting them on patients and taking them off yourself, you're going to start to feel much more confident to like test them on your own patients, you know, and you're not going to tell your patients that you, you know, this is my first one. or this is your <laughs> yeah. my first But I think that uh, it does give you that kind of confidence that you can kind of pull it off. And maybe you don't start with the hardest case, but you can feel confident that you can start with, you know, something simpler, but know that you feel like you know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really true what you said, like that hands-on experience, especially what um, I did at the Spring Symposium was perfect. Like you really need that hands-on experience to kind of guide yourself to know what you're doing. So that's definitely yeah. true. Um, why did you become a fellow of the Scleral Lens Education Society? And in your personal opinion, what are the benefits of becoming a fellow? When I became a fellow it was brand new I think it was only around for like two years when I started so it was really really quite new um and I was one of those kind of go-getters I mean I think anyone who does a residency is definitely a keener and this is the same case um where you're just like you know what I am young I want to go and get the certification so not only to my patients do I sound you know more experienced and more certified but also to local experts like ophthalmologists so it was really kind of helpful to me to go to ophthalmologists and say, hey, you know what, I'm a fellow of the Special Lens Society. I'm not just playing around and doing this for fun. Like, I actually had to submit cases to this. I had to work hard. 
And so it kind of gives you that level level of notoriety. When it comes to, you know, doing your fellowship with the American Academy of Optometry, same thing. So the nice thing about both of those is they also have directories, and I use them a lot. So if I have a patient who, let's say they're like, I'm moving to Montreal, okay, I'm going to go look on that list and find out which other fellows are in that area so I can recommend someone that I can trust because I might not actually personally know anyone there to recommend, but if they're also on that list, I know that they've worked really hard. The other thing is, is that it's really nice that you can, you know, have a little group of people that are interested in the same thing you're interested in to bounce ideas off of. So if you're looking for research products or you're looking to contribute back to your profession and kind of teach the next generation of doctors coming in, being part of those really gives you the step in the door to kind of make more of a difference and give back. Once you become residency trained and have a fellowship, and now you want to slowly begin implementing scleral lenses into your own practice as a beginner, um, it's kind of important to initially examine the current patient population that you practice in, right? So what are some common ocular conditions amongst patients that respond well to scleral lenses? Well, the first thing I would say, especially for someone that is starting off and looking at their patient base to say, okay, where am I going to begin? Definitely start with an adult. So don't start with a teenager or a yeah. child. <laughs> Definitely start with an adult. Keratoconus, honestly, is pretty good, you know, because you're not dealing with a graft where you have a low endothelial count and you're swelling. You're just dealing with normal keratoconus, and you have obviously different severities. So maybe you have someone who's more mild, you know, maybe they're best corrected vision in glasses is about like 2050. That would be someone that's more on the mild side of things. So I would start with kind of a mild to moderate keratoconus patient. I think that those ones are pretty much slam dunks to be really, really happy. The other ones that are really good to do are patients with dry eyes that have gone through all the other treatment recommendations. You know, they've done, you talk to these patients, they've done IPL, they've done radiofrequency, they've done autologous serum, and they've done all sorts of anti-inflammatories and nothing's making a difference. And then you put that scleral lens on and immediately they're like, oh, it's amazing. Those are sometimes my favorite patients to do. And they have more normal, again, corneal shapes. So they should be relatively easy to try. And then, of course, normalize. Anything with like high stigmatism, I think, would just be easy to do. The one thing that, of course, is kind of a little tricky for all those patients is if you don't know their scleral topography, it can be tricky because you could look at a normal person and say, you have normal stigmatism or you just have dry eye. No problem. But they have these big eyes and beautiful, like, kind of puppy, huge puppy bro fissures. And oh, it turns out when you put a lens on, you know, their scleral is wildly, you know, asymmetrical. And so that can make it a little bit tricky. So sometimes you can't see, you can't tell what's going to be an easy fit and what's not. I was caught with this early on in my career where I was like, oh, look at you. Like, you can see 2014 glasses. I'm going to get this, like, in two shakes. And then with how irregular their scleral is, you're just kind of backtracking and, you know, you learn to not overpromise for patients. You know, it's better to kind of under promise and then come back and over deliver and be like, Oh man, you're doing so much better than I expected. Then they're so proud of themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so setting them and you up for success too. And so it's how you yeah. address them in, in your, uh, I guess, consultation when you first talk to them. Yeah. I love having those patients, even in BV for me, it's like when you put like a prism lens in front of a patient and they just immediately respond with such a positive reaction. It's such a rewarding feeling, not only for the patient, but definitely for you. 
Um, you did mention um, to have some important equipment in your office to make sure as well that a patient is a good fit for a scleral lens. So in your opinion, what is the in-office technology that's absolutely necessary when initially building your scleral lens practice? So not only topographer, but maybe OCTs, aberrometers. What do you think? Yeah. So I think really if you're starting out with uh, sclerals, you've got to have an anterior segment OCT. When we're talking about, for example, limbal clearances, sometimes we're talking about less than 20 microns. And anything less than 20 microns, you're not going to see with sodium fluoridine. I mean, there's a way where you can look at it without dying a cross-section and say, hey, you know what, this is roughly... 150 microns clearance, but you don't know for sure, for sure. Having anterior segment OCT is like a comfort blanket. It will just make sure that you've not missed anything and that you have the clearances that you're hoping for all the way across the cornea. It also does help a little bit with designing the edge. And if you can save those images and send them to consultation, it really helps them to be able to talk to you too and, and to be able to change some things. So I'd say that would be number one. Number two would be a topographer. Now, you don't have to go with a pentacam. Uh, pentacams are great, and that will be able to tell you the earliest change in disease progress with the keratoconus and things like that because you can see the posterior float. But that's kind of like the Cadillac. When something like a Medmont, just a normal placido test topographer, if you use that, that's going to be your Chevrolet. It's still going to get you from point A to B. So you don't need to break the bank on that at the very beginning. Uh, that can be kind of like uh, something you, you work up to. But the one thing that I think is always overlooked that is really important to anyone when you're working in anterior segment and contact lenses is having an anterior segment camera or video capability in your slit lamp. So in our clinic, we right now have four lanes and we have anterior segment cameras on every single one of them. And not only is it good for patient education, we've got big TVs up that they can look at as well, uh, but it's also really great when you do talk to consultation, when you're new and you don't know, like, how many microns do I change this by, you can send them a picture and say, this is what I'm seeing. What would you recommend? And then they start trying to teach you and say, in this scenario, you should flatten your edge by 50 microns. You should do 100 microns. So it's also a teaching process between you and consultation as well. And I really highly recommend having some sort of uh, capability on, the, on any slit lamp that you're using for the sort of fit. What are some factors that are important when deciding between which scleral fitting kits to start with in your new scleral lens practice? So what I would do is do your research, you know, and everybody uses certain ones in school uh, that maybe they become comfortable with the design and they feel like they want to use that, go for it. Whatever you're comfortable with, do it. But I would take a look at the different manufacturers and see what their warranty process is. When you're new to fitting contact lenses, expect to do more changes than you would when you are used to the contact, contact lenses. So there are a variety of companies out there that recommend that our guests offer unlimited exchanges for three months or 90 days. Those are going to be super friendly to learn from because if you make a mistake, oh, well, you can get another lens in as long as it's within that three months. Compared to there's some other companies out there that say, you know what, you can get two free changes and after that, we're going to start charging you. And every single time you're charged money, you as a practitioner are losing money and your practice is losing money. 
So it's really important to make sure that you know the warranties that you're dealing with first. The next thing would be to make sure that you're choosing a lens that has the customization properties that you're hoping for. So if you want a lens that can do a micro vault, that can do a notch, that can do a quadrant specific design or kind of do some interesting things that maybe not all lenses out there can do, then make sure that you're kind of looking for, okay, you know, I want to be able to fit over pinguaculas and I want to pick that with a micro vault. Okay, well, let's go get a lens that has that capability. Just, and the last thing is just make sure that you're comfortable talking with their consultation. One of the things that I learned early in my practice is there are certain companies that you call them and it's like they act like you're inconveniencing them by asking questions and you just feel awful about calling them and you get off the phone feeling like they were rude to you and act like you're dumb and you're not. You just haven't had any experience with their lens yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so make sure that the consultation, whatever you're dealing with, that they're, you know, they are there and their job is to help you. You should never feel like you're inconveniencing them. They should only be there to teach you so that you can get better. And ideally, at the end of the day, fit their lens more. I mean, that's the whole point. So make sure that you have a good, uh, I guess, relationship with consultation and that they're available whatever way that you like to order your lenses, whether that's by phone or email. That's a really yeah. important one. Yeah, I definitely agree. 100%. Yeah. Especially as a beginner, you're going to have so many questions. So someone's yeah. going to take the time to help you out and kind of explain that process. It's just going to ruin your confidence and you're going to be like, well, I guess I don't know what I'm doing, so I just won't fit anymore. Sell my, sell my practice. It's over. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> um, so Dr. Lasby, you kind of mentioned this a little bit in your previous answer, but you know, fittings can be challenging when ocular surface irregularities are present, such as pterygiums, pinguinculas, and blebs. So what is your approach for fitting a lens to these irregularities and can you name particular lens brands you use to that offer these customizations? Yeah, so with MicroVaults, um, Alden, or I guess now Bosch and Loam, have the Zen lens, which they were the first ones to offer it. But you can also get it on Valley Contact Custom Stable lens. Um, the other one that we've used is Boston Sight because they do, can do channels. Uh, which are just a little different, but kind of the same idea and goal. Uh, the other one would be, I mean, you can do something like a notch, which most companies can do. They have different names for it sometimes. I know Blanchard with their one fit calls it a controlled peripheral recess. For those ones, I would say for the mild irregularities, they work really, really well. Uh, and I think that they are excellent, you know, as far as, the ability to do things with the lens we were never able to do before. You know, we'd have to either go smaller with the diameter or larger and try to vault over top of that problem. Uh, and there's just way more options in the last five years that were not available even when I was doing my residency. And then, of course, there's the impression-based design. So right now, I believe we're the only site in Western Canada that has access to iPrint Pro. And we found that very helpful for probably 5 to 10% of patients that those other regular kind of, I would say, your kind of go-to square lenses, they can't fix. So there's certain things like I had a patient with two blebs in one eye with glaucoma, um, and the blebs were so huge, and his glaucoma was so advanced, and he was a monocular patient, that we just didn't want to risk putting any pressure on it. So we ended up doing an impression of him. And the really kind of interesting thing with that is it, he, on the lathe, he broke 
about 10 lenses because his his elevation of those bleds were so high even iPrint Pro it was going beyond anything that they could manufacture so at the end of the day we actually ended up vaulting over one bled and notching around the other uh, and that was the only way that we could get something to not compress on those bleds so there's definitely a limit to what sclerals can do in those cases yeah. remember it's just one tool so I think if you're going to do a scleral lens make sure that you understand what its limitations will be because all these lenses they offer awesome options and they kind of Say it's easy, you can fit it, easy as one, two, three. You've seen all those lectures that are called that. <laughs> um, it's, it's, and it, it can, you can get better at it, but I wouldn't ever really say it's easy. Uh, there's also new technology coming out of the States um, where you are empirically fitting the lenses based off of scleral topography. And so Visionary does a lens called Latitude Lens. That lens is not available for ordering in Canada, nor is typical scleral topography available. Um, there are only a couple centers in, in Canada that have that just because it's not approved by Health Canada yet. Um, but I have seen some of my colleagues use Latitude in the States and there's been some very interesting lenses come out of, of that technology that are really kind of promising for the future. So that new technology kind of relates to the scleral profilometers that they have, right? So yeah. I thought that was really cool when I started searching into that because obviously as a BV resident, I stayed far away from the scleral lenses for a while. So when I read about that, I thought it was really cool that they use the algorithms of the machine to design an optimal diagnostic lens. Um, quick question about that. For your opinion, do you think that that new technology has the potential to eliminate diagnostic fitting sets? that's definitely the holy grail right and so when you are fitting taking less time to have a fit you're going to be more profitable and everyone wants that so there's a whole bunch of researchers and industry pushing that because it is going to be an, an, an amazing opportunity if we can get essentially an instrument that will do it and that will come out with a perfect lens essentially every time it's not there yet but if you think about how like a dentist would fit a mouth guard and they know yeah. an exact impression and then perfect, you have a perfect mouth guard and off you go. You know, if yeah. we could do that and save our patients time and potentially save them money, then that would be great. But right now that technology is still very expensive. Did you say about like approximately when those lenses would be available in Canada or you have no idea? So it's tricky because just having a scleral topographer is, is not the problem. We can get scleral topographers. In fact, our practice has one now. Mm -hmm. um, but they, the companies also need Health Canada approval to send their designs to Canada. Mm -hmm. And that is the biggest case right now is visionary. is like, we can't send to you because we're technically breaking the law <laughs> by sending you this technology over the border. Right. And that was a huge issue for me even five years ago. There is probably only half of the companies that can work with Canadians could do it at that point. And they hadn't gone through all the Health Canada regulations to ship. Even ZenLens wasn't available in Canada until like maybe three years ago. So everything is, is kind of changing very rapidly, which is great. Well, probably going to wait a long time. Then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so Dr. Lasby, just getting into more of the business side of scleral lenses. 
Um, so most often scleral lenses are an out-of-pocket service. Um, in your opinion, as beginners, how do we go about pricing for their services and lenses? And are there certain factors to consider when calculating the fees that you want to charge? Yeah. So this is a big problem when I first graduated because in our area when there was no no people that did this, there were doctors in the city charging $100 for special lens fit. You know, the max I think I saw was like $400 at the time, which is really low. Uh, it really doesn't cover your time. And what I found when I first started out doing that, because I didn't want to break free from the rest of the competition because I didn't want to be the one optometrist that was completely overcharging compared to everyone else in this area. So I didn't increase our fees for about a year. But what I found is that even for our associates that didn't take an extra year residency, they, they weren't further in debt, you know, like I was, they were kind of unspecialized as general. They were making way more than me and doing way less work because I'm trying to use my brain and working really, really hard on these cases and doing all these follow-ups that are included under the initial fee. And they were doing eye exams and rolling out and selling glasses and they were just, their take home was way more than me. And so I sat down with my now business partner and said, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I can't keep doing this. Otherwise I should just do, be doing regular eye exams because it's not worth it for my time. Mm-hmm. So what I tell my interns, you want to take a look at how much you charge for an eye exam. And let's say your eye exams at your clinic takes 30 minutes, for example. Um, and let's just say you charge $150 for an eye exam. So if your, let's say your initial set takes an hour, and then you need to do six follow-ups to get the initial set, and each one of those follow-ups is 15 minutes. So let's say you're spending two and a half total time, two and a half hours fitting this patient to finalization not including their follow-ups in six months or a year or whatever, just for the initial fit. So in that same two and a half hours, you could do five eye examinations. So if you were charging $150 for each eye examination and you did five of them, that would be $750 in just your professional fees alone, not including glasses or selling contacts or anything like that. So if you think about for your t- what is your time worth, you need to charge at least $750 in only professional fees to make up for how much time it's taking you to do that. And so that's the calculation that pretty much every single person has to look at what are they charging their clinics? What is their time worth? What do they think? How long do they think it's going to take them on an average fit? And then they can come to that number for them. But they need to kind of know what does each 15 minutes of my time cost? And then how much time would I expect to take with these fits? And then multiply it out. Uh, the other really nice tool that's out there is the um, Gaspar Removal Lens Institute, the GPLI. You can just Google them, and they have a professional fee calculator. So you can put in, like, how much you charge on your eyes and how much, you know, how many visits do you do on average, uh, and it will t- come out at the bottom and, like, tell you what you should charge, which is awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that's kind of, yeah. like, a really nice tool to use as well. I actually like that. I've never heard of that. So that's definitely something that everyone should look into if you're going to put any specialty lenses, even GPs, because GPs are still considered specialty too. So um, leaning more into other additional things that we have to think about in a private practice when we want specialty lenses, you know, how many trained support staff do you think is needed to help with scleral lens fittings in order to be more efficient and reduce the chair time? 
that's a really hard question because at our clinic, when we do this day in and day out, every single one of our staff is trained on how to put in lenses, take out lenses, go and take an OCT of those lenses, decide if it's touching or if it's too far, and adjust with, that, mm-hmm. with what lens is going in the eye without me seeing the patient one time. So we do that to speed us up. An average clinic, though, I would say you probably want at least one or two technicians to every doctor to know how to do it. In an ideal world, if you are have the ability to work out of two rooms, what's really nice is that you can be going really long time on this fit, you know, one to two hours, however long it takes you to get the right lens in their eye. And in the meantime, every time your, your staff helps you out and taking out a lens, putting in a new lens, taking the scans, putting them back in the room, you could be doing an eye exam next door or seeing a medical follow-up next door. So if you have the ability to work out of two examination lanes and have essentially two technicians, one technician working the regular eye exam medical follow-up room and the other one with you the whole time on that fit, then you can really, you don't have to stay with that patient the whole time and only see that patient uh, when you could be kind of squeezing in all these exams and kind of moving back and forth and, and seeing more patients at the same time. What are your tips and tricks for um, smoother insertion and removal when teaching either the staff or the patients? For insertion, and especially when our staff are putting them in, one of the kind of interesting things that I always, we always tell them, make sure first that your face is parallel to the ground. Whether you're standing or sitting, you got to make sure that they can bend over so that they're facing low. The other thing that your staff can do, or you when you're putting a lens on the patient, and I learned this from Lynette John, is when you're coming out on the back of them, make sure that you have your elbow at the back of, your, of their head. So essentially you're pushing their head down so they're not going to stand up on you. So you have a bit of pressure there. And you come around the backside, and that's how you pull up the upper eyelid. Because the patient's going to be pulling down their lower eyelid themselves when you put in the lens. But if you kind of, that way you have full control of their head, so that's the kind of the best option as far as putting it in um, for a patient. As far as um, making sure you don't have any bubbles, make sure that whatever you're filling it up with, whatever insertion solution that you're using, that you have that meniscus over the top of the lens full and not underneath. And that will really kind of help to prevent any bubbles from going in. With removal, um, our clinic does things a little bit differently. So part of the reason when I first got interested in contact lenses is I went to Australia during my fourth year of optometry school and learned from Richard Lindsay, who is, he runs a private practice in Melbourne in Australia and his practice does only contact lenses, no regular eye exams, no posterior segment, just contact lenses. And he was teaching every single patient with the scleral lens to create a bubble first. So once you have that lens on the eye, you want to just pull that lower lid down so it's underneath the edge of the contact lens and just push in slightly. And just like um, kind of how we, you can break the suction of the lens because that lens is going to suck on during the day. And the number one complaint problem we see with patients is they can't get the lens out at the end of the day because it's really tight. So we always teach them, especially with transplants, to make that bubble first. You know that you can see it's all gone blurry. Then you can go and grab your plunger and put it kind of at that one-third up from the bottom of the lens and pull that lens out. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to worry that they're pulling on their eye or they got that little plunger stuck and they, you know, can't get it (laughs) off. So that's the best thing that we teach our patients. Now, in the practice, though, I don't recommend you doing it that way. I think it's good 
for the doctor when you first are fitting these lines and you're doing that end-of-day follow-up, make sure that you're going in and taking it out for the patient without bubble first because it's a really good diagnostic tool to see if that lens is too tight and you need to loosen the edges a little bit. Mm, so I always recommend yeah. that doctors don't like see what it's like first. If you're having trouble, then create the bubble and take it out yourself. But I like to teach all my patients that way because no matter what, I know when they go home, they are going to be able to take the lens out and they're not going to find their, their themselves in an emergency room asking an ER doctor at midnight on a Sunday night how to take a lens out of their eye and they've never seen it before in their life. The next phase is just making sure that you always have some sort of um, emergency number that your patients can call. Yeah. And so on our spiral lens handouts, when it's talking about don't ever rinse your contact lenses in tap water, you know, all the things, do's and don'ts of scleral lenses, at the very bottom it always says, and if you have any problems, contact Dr. Lasby on her cell phone. And I've only had like two scleral lens patients in six years use it. But for both of them, they would have probably taken themselves to urgent care or the ER, and we were able to save themselves that visit and going to a doctor that has no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Dr. Lasby, I feel like any issue that comes up with a scleral lens, you've seen it all. So I don't think, does anything even surprise you anymore? Anything that walks through that door, you're kind of like, yep, seen it, get in the chair, I'll fix it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one that took me by surprise actually was a patient who said, you know, this isn't working, this isn't, like, I, I'm not seeing very clearly. And then we checked their one eye, it was good, but they thought, yeah, they were seeing, like, awful, and usually they could see pretty well. And uh, it wasn't until uh, we looked at the OCT and I was, immediately I was like, mm, you've got two square lenses on one eye. How long have you had both on oh. one eye? Like, really? It's been like this for at least a week. So that they probably oh. had one lens on for a whole week and kept on inserting and removing another lens on top of it. So that, yeah, you see some interesting things happen. <laughs> When we already talked about, you know, how to set your fitting fees for the specialty lenses, do you also manage the price for the lenses themselves after the company gives you that cost price for the lens? And how would yeah. you decide that price? So it really depends because you have to look at it not just for what's the profit you're making on this one lens, but what does it cost your staff? So potentially order the lens to verify the parameters of the lens when it comes in, to call the patient, to book the patient, um, to, you know, to get the computer systems in place to let the patients know that their, that their lenses are ready to be picked up. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to look at all of that. And then on top of that, you have to look at the Canadian versus American dollar in our instance and, and know what is the exchange rate there, uh, but also shipping. Shipping's a huge one in some mm. companies will charge a massive amount. And so you really have to add that up. So every, I would say, office has their own markup that they do. Uh, but I would say it's pretty normative on the industry to be anywhere from one and a half to two and a half times the price of the contact lens after it's all said and done. Okay. Do you have any last minute encouraging advice to the new grads that might start on this daunting journey of beginning a scleral lens practice? Um, I would just say make sure to keep active, you know, whether it's with continuing education or whether it's even with like a local professional society, 
Make sure that you're talking to your peers, asking questions. The number one thing people miss when they leave school is that camaraderie and saying, hey, I had this case. Oh, I messed it up. Like, what would you have done or something like that? And you, you very quickly go from that teamwork atmosphere to feeling very alone and to, you know, and that can be a lot of pressure in the first couple of years of practice. So make sure that you have those people you can talk to that you can bounce ideas off of if you need to. Um, just because that you have a, you know, the OD after your name does not necessarily mean that you need to absolutely know everything. So make sure that you have those peers and those mentors that you can bounce questions off of. I know for myself and, and a lot of my colleagues that do this, uh, we take questions all the time from, from friends of ours or colleagues of ours that come across something really weird. And so make sure you have those kind of bases in your back pocket. I know that I do for what I'm not good at, like BV, for example, or low vision. I always have other people I'm asking about those sort of things because yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so usually I end up referring them, but I do usually ask some questions. So make sure to keep those connections that you have in school and keep learning because yet yeah, you're the smartest you are as soon as you graduate and it just goes downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. It's only been one year and we already feel that sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like you're at your peak at board. Yeah. And it's just a slow decline. Yeah. The things you don't use just leave you. But yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Lasby, for doing uh, our podcast. We thought this was an incredible discussion about scleral lenses, and we really appreciate you coming on. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned.